chapter 14. We'll be there this morning. Before we start, though, I just want to take a a moment to say uh, thank you so much for um, your card and your gifts and your encouragement uh, last week in Pastor's Appreciation Day and Month. Um, It is... uh, it is such a blessing to to get to do what I get to do. Uh, it's it's I'm very aware of God's grace at work, and um, I don't feel worthy uh, of that encouragement. But I recognize the grace of God at work, and I'm so thankful. Um, and I'm thankful for the encouragement that you. That you bring that that is used by God definitely to buoy me and my wife and our family, and uh, and the the gift uh, financial gift was wonderful and will help us um, pay for our Christmas gifts. That's what we're going to use it for. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you guys. Uh, it's more than just doing a card and giving a gift. As great as that is, it's it's getting to do this together and experiencing the friendship and fellowship and, and partnership that that. Uh, is what it is to be part of a family, a church family. So um, it is a high privilege to, to pastor you guys, and I'm very grateful for that. Very grateful to God, grateful to you guys. So thank you so much. Well, we're going to continue in the book of Acts as we go through this wonderful, amazing story that teaches us on how, about how the, the gospel, the good news of Christ went from the life of Christ and with his disciples in Jerusalem to forming this new church that was empowered by the Spirit to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And, and what amazing story it is. And, and we've been learning about this story and marveling at this story, but also learning that this story is not merely meant for the first century church and what they went through, but but. It's meant for us today. There are things that we can draw and learn from this story. And it is both something to marvel at and to see as unique indeed. Uh, The 12 apostles had walked with Jesus. There are no longer apostles as such. But we can learn so much. And these things are meant to be continued. So let's prepare to read chapter 14 and continue to learn, to marvel, and to learn from God's Word. Let's pray and ask Him to do just that. Lord, we thank You so much. Thank You so much for the book of Acts. Thank You so much for these stories, these inspiring stories that that teach us about You and who You are, that teach us about what it is to be Your people on the mission to witness through who we are and what we say, the proclamation of the Gospel. Thank you, Lord, for all that we can learn from it. And, Lord, I know that you want to speak to us today through this chapter. So would you come and do that? Would you help me, Lord, to serve you and your people? Give us ears to hear. May we, um, may we listen to you, Lord. May, may I and other things fade into the background, and may your voice be front and center as we learn from you. May you be glorified, and may your purposes in and through our lives be propelled through the, the preaching of your word, we pray and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's take a look at chapter 14. Again, I'll read through the entire chapter so we can experience this story firsthand from the word of God. We know that Barnabas and Paul uh, have been sent out from the church in Antioch, this dynamic church. They've been sent out by the Spirit 
to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles, and they go out preaching first to Jew and then to Gentile, and, and this is really uh, cutting-edge stuff for the early church. Uh, and they've gone um, to Cyprus and then to what is now Turkey, and they've made their way, and in this chapter they are at three cities. We'll see Iconium and then Lystra and Derby, these cities that are further inland. And so it starts in chapter 14, verse 1. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelievers, unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra... There was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own Ways, Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them 
to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived, arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Acts chapter 14. What an amazing chapter in this grand adventure. Amazing what goes on here. They go to Iconium. And as is usual, they go to the synagogues. When there is a synagogue available, they first go there. Makes sense because in the synagogue are people who have been taught the Scriptures, who are, in a sense, prepared to hear about the fulfillment of the Scriptures. And so they go to the synagogue and and they preach in such a way, in such a way, they preach the truth, they preach in the power of the Holy Spirit, in such a way that a, a large number, a large number, A great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So there's tremendous fruit in Iconium. Tremendous fruit. There's power. The Spirit of God is using their preaching. Technology has its limits, doesn't it? And I've got a funny-shaped head, I think. Um, So so they, they... preach in Iconium, and uh, God, God brings many people to him. Yet we see once again, and we'll see this throughout the book of Acts, once again the, there's opposition. And people uh, actually conspire together against them. There's Jewish leaders and, 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 and Greeks as well, Gentiles as well, who, who are poisoned. And with their leaders, they conspire to stone the apostles Barnabas and, and Paul. So they have to flee Iconium rather than be stoned and have the mission stop there. So they go on to Lystra. And what an amazing story in Lystra, isn't it? They go there and, and there's no synagogue apparently. So they're preaching in public. And there's a man there who's crippled from birth, much like the man who was in the temple earlier on in Acts, who Peter and John were used to heal. Much like that, that man, he had never walked and... Paul speaks to him and he's healed. It's dramatic healing. And everybody knew him. Everybody knew this man and they saw it. And the reaction here was very different though, wasn't it, than what happened in the temple. The difference is here you have a people who are not trained in the Scriptures. And so they see this miracle and they, their frame of reference is entirely different. They're, they are steeped in, in paganism, uh, steeped in the, the Greek pantheon and and. Uh, a, a background that had understood that at times the gods came down in human form and, and would walk about the earth and do things and, and you had to respond rightly to them or they would crush you. And if you responded rightly, they'd bless you. And so they interpret all that's gone on in light of that. They think this is the, the gods have come down and they're ecstatic. And then uh, Barnabas and Paul are, are, are beside themselves. The fact that people would interpret this in some way that would put the attention on them, that would distract from the living God, and they tear their clothes uh, as a sign of, of concern and, and, and heartache about the, this, this blasphemous understanding. And they implore them to, to think otherwise. And Paul preaches here. Preaches differently than he does 
earlier in Antioch of Pisidia. Different than, the, than he did to Jews, because these people are mostly all Greeks. There were some Jews there. We know Timothy who was from Lystra. But he preaches entirely different, speaking of the goodness of God to them. That they need to consider and turn from these things that God calls them to account. You can see in Athens a similar type message. And then we, we, we watch what happens. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? There's this amazing miracle in the preaching of Paul. And, and you think that it would go from there and there would be response. But what happens? Jews come down from Iconium and, and they poison the minds of these as well. And they turn the crowd around probably within hours. They turn the crowd around from, from thinking, Zeus and Hermes, we're going to offer sacrifice to, let's kill the guys. Fickle crowd. And they actually do stone Paul. They stone him. That would mean that they'd put him in the center and they'd surround him and they'd throw hand-sized stones at him, full force. It kills people. That was the intention of stoning, to kill someone. They drag Paul out of the city, bruised and bleeding, assuming he's dead, and we don't know what happened. Whether it was, well, I think it was miraculous. We don't know in particular whether he was dead and brought back to life or God just sustained him. It doesn't say. Luke's not concerned with that. Luke seems concerned with something else. Because when they drag him out of the city, they get around him. Can you imagine? This is your guy. This is your team leader. And he's just been stoned. And everything's turned south. And you're gathered around him. Paul gets back up. It goes back into the city. He goes back into the city. And then he goes to the next one. He goes to Derby and does the same thing again. And then you'd think maybe he'd go home then, but he doesn't. He turns around. They backtrack, go through all the cities, strengthening the disciples, helping them, installing or appointing elders in every church. They go back to the same places they were persecuted. And then they come down. They, they finally return home and, and they report all that had happened. What an amazing story. I can imagine being in that church in Antioch and, and, and what it would have been like. I, I, I think I would have been so excited along with all the disciples, all the believers there, to hear how God had fulfilled this mission and just this little missionary journey that he had sent them out to do. I mean, just to hear the stories and to hear the breakthrough of the gospel going to the Gentiles and to hear the amazing stories. But I, I think I also would have been perplexed. I, I don't know if you would have been like that, but I would have been perplexed just to listen and then to think about Paul and Barnabas and, and the fact that they, they continually came up against mixed results, didn't they? Great numbers in, in uh, Iconium. Great numbers believe a church is established and then they're driven out of the city. The city's divided against them. They go to, they go to the next city. They're, Paul is actually stoned and then he gets back up. And, and I think I would have said, Paul, this is amazing what God has done, but what is up with you? Are you crazy? you got a good deal here in Antioch. There's people coming to Christ. We've got maturity in this church. I mean, why would you do this? And, and how did you have, how in the world did you have the gumption to get back up and go back into the city and go through all this and know that at each place you were going to face this sort of opposition? Yeah, the results are great, but the opposition is horrible. I think the fickle crowd in Leicester might have undone me. Why, God? Just we've got a miracle and everything gets totally turned around. What's going on? But it doesn't undo Paul and Barnabas. 
And what I wanted to do today is just talk about that. Because I think if you're like me, and I imagine you are to some degree, there are times in life when, when, when things happen, they don't turn out how we want them to turn out. We get mixed results. We face mixed results. And they can be all sorts. They can be personally. They can be with our children. They can be with our church even. Maybe you're coming from a church where there's been mixed results. And as a result of that, at times, we, get, we, we give up. Or something probably even more dangerous, we go into mere survival mode. We go into survival mode. Rather than thriving in the Lord, rather than going on, rather than maintaining our zeal, Paul says in Romans 12:11. this has been a verse that, that has, God has used in my life. It says, Paul says in Romans 12:11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Never be lacking in zeal. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord, as it says in the NIV. What what a command. What a verse. But I know for some of us, this verse might just be a mocking taunt to us. Or some legalistic rod that hits us to torture us in our weariness and malaise. But that's not what God wants. God has given us His Word. God has given us Acts 14. He's given us the example of Paul. That this verse might call us to the same sort of zeal. Yes, our call is not the same as Paul, but we are called to the same sort of zeal. And God wants you to never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. That's God's heart for you. And He's given us this example. So let's take a look at these crazy guys. Let's learn from them. Let's learn from them how they maintained their zeal. And really the answer is not how they maintained their zeal, but how God did it. How God maintained their zeal as they looked to God. So if you have the notes, you'll see we're going to talk about how the Spirit, God the Spirit, God the Son, and God the Father worked in such a way to maintain their zeal that they would do such crazy things for the Lord, even in the face of mixed results. Now last week we did talk about how these guys depended on the Spirit. We saw in chapter 13 how the Spirit sent them, how the Spirit empowered them, how the Spirit used their preaching, how the Spirit filled the disciples with joy. We see in this chapter, though the Spirit is not named explicitly, we see the Spirit at work. For, for speaking the word in such a way in Iconium that a great number come to the Lord, a great number believe, that's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is working in the preaching of Paul in such a way that people are being won to Christ. The Spirit is at work doing this, empowering them, working through them. This, the healing of the man is a work of the Spirit. The preservation of Paul's life is a work of the Spirit. All these things are born of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and we need to get this lesson. We need it so much because for some reason, probably for multiple reasons, we are apt to neglect the third person of the Trinity and to functionally have a spirit, a Holy Spirit-less or a Holy Spirit-light Christianity. And, and to do such a thing for Paul would be unthinkable. Unthinkable. A great book uh, to read about this is Paul the Spirit and the people of God by Gordon Fee. And he looks at the teachings of Paul on the Holy Spirit. And Paul 
Paul treasured the work of the Spirit. He depended on the work of the Spirit. Acts itself is really a book about what happens when we wait on God for power from the Holy Spirit. What results of that? Luke is the author of Acts, and Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke as well. And at the end of the Gospel of Luke, he says this. The Lord says this. Luke records it. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They understood there was no witness, there was no fulfillment of the mission without the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, Wait in the city until you receive power. Now, That was a unique occurrence. It was the first reception of the Spirit as New Testament people. And yes, indeed, we do have the same Spirit if you are a believer. We don't have to experience Pentecost all over again. But we must learn to wait on the Spirit. We must learn to look to God for power. The same principle applies. It isn't automatic. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. He's not an automatic force that's just in your life. And and you can think, you can just, he's there, I'll go. He's a person. There's a relationship. We can grieve the Spirit. We can quench the Spirit. We can ignore the Spirit. We can resist the Spirit. But instead, we are to seek the Spirit's power. We're to wait on God and ask Him to fill us with power. We are to be desperately dependent on the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one that works in us and through us. The Spirit is the presence and power of God right now for us as His people. He is the one who works new life in us, who works faith in us, who gives us eyes to see, gives us the ability to understand and embrace the Word. He is the one who gives us a thirst for righteousness and then satisfies that thirst. He's the one that gives us love for God, a desire to see and savor His glory. He's the one that reveals the glory. He's the one who empowers us for service to His purposes. He is the one that works love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in our lives. He does all these things. He guides us. He leads us. He meets us. The Spirit does all these things. And we must rely on the Holy Spirit. We must be desperate. We must recognize, please, we must recognize, I must recognize daily our desperate need for the Holy Spirit and to ask to be filled again and again, to look to Him, to wait on Him, to be filled. For Paul, it would have been unthinkable to do this missionary journey without an active, desperate dependence on God, the Holy Spirit. You can take time to survey his writings and, and draw that conclusion yourself. It's there. Gordon Fee says about Paul, in his book, The Spirit is God's own personal presence in our lives and in our midst. He leads us into the paths of righteousness for His namesake. He is working all things and all people. He is His glory, and He is present in our worship as we sing praise and honor and glory and power to God and the Lamb. It is for God's people of a later time, like ours, once more, to grasp these realities by experiencing them if we are to truly capture Paul's understanding. How do we do that? We wait on the Lord. We look to Him. We cry out to Him. Paul says elsewhere, For this I toil, 
speaking of his mission, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. We need that sort of energy. We need that sort of power. God has promised to give us this. In Luke 11, where Jesus is talking about asking, seeking, and knocking, in this account in Luke 11, it, it, it speaks of the Father giving the Holy Spirit. It says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So, do you ask Him? Do you cry out? Do you ask Him for the Spirit? Do you ask Him to empower your life? Do you ask Him to, to take you deeper into truth, to empower you for service, to work a thirst for holiness in your life that's a genuine, deep, Christ-centered thirst? Do you ask Him? Younger generation, you've grown up around the truths of God. You've grown up around truth and you are better schooled than we are as adults. But, but let me ask you, are you asking God to experience His truth in a deeper way through the Holy Spirit? Do you want more of Him? Do you want more of His power? Do you want to see the things in the book in and through your lives? Do you taste and see that He is good or do you just know it upstairs? You have to know it upstairs. That's where it starts, but that's not where it finishes. The Spirit of God needs to come and empower you. You may know the Lord, but do you know the Lord? Do you find His truth shaping your life? Is He your passion? Is He your truth? Not just intellectually, but in your life. Can you look at your life functionally and say, I want to do these things. I want to be like Paul. I want to be crazy for the Lord because He's the Lord, because He's in my life. Are you hungry? Are you desperate? I pray you are. I pray we all are. I'm learning myself how to be desperate for the Holy Spirit. Paul his team was desperate and he got back up and went in and did what he did because the Spirit was at work in his life and through his life. That's the work of the Spirit. Second, Paul continued and his team continued because he gloried in Christ. He gloried in Christ. For Paul, the Gospel wasn't a mere theological system, not a mere truth, as great as that is, Christ Himself, His person and His work, was Paul's glory. Because Christ is God's glory revealed. Paul gloried in Jesus Christ. He gloried in Him. It was the most thrilling thing about his life to know Christ, to experience Christ, and to propagate the truth of Christ. When we have something that we treasure, when we have something that we glory in, we share it. We always do. We are relational beings, and we will share with others what we glory in most. Paul gloried in Christ, and he was compelled to tell people about Jesus Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Later on in that section, he says, You are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. His boast, His glory is in Jesus Christ. He treasured that. He gloried in that that amazing story. The story that is better than any other story ever. The story of Christ outdoes all stories. There will never be another story like it. 
never has been, never will be. It is the most amazing true story in all of history, and all other stories at best can only mirror in shadows this amazing story of Christ, that God Himself would come down as a man. God Himself would become a man. God Himself would become a man and live and fulfill righteousness. He would come as a servant. He would live a lowly life, born as a baby in a manger, a humble person, and come and walk the walk and be subject to the same temptations as we are, even more significantly than any of us would ever experience, and, and obey, obey to the point, loving God His Father perfectly, faithfully, believing Him, obeying Him, loving Him, loving others perfectly, faithfully, God in the flesh, doing all these things, having lived among us, and loving to the point where He offered Himself up on the cross. The infinitely, eternally worthy One dying on the cross for infinitely guilty ones who had spurned and mocked and trampled the priceless glory of God. Spurned and mocked and trampled and rejected the priceless glory of God. We have committed a heinous, infinite crime. We have beheld the glory of God in creation, just in creation, that, that shows His divine nature, that He's good and ordered and perfect, and His eternal power, that, that this is an infinitely powerful God in His creation. We have seen it, and we have said, no thanks. I want me to be God. Functionally, all of us have done that to different levels in different ways. Some of us are very good at looking very moral in doing that. We can be legalistic, but ultimately we're serving a God of our own making. Others of us are blatant in our sin, have been blatant in our sin. We have created this, we have committed this eternal, this infinite, heinous crime, not an eternal one, an infinite, heinous crime against God, and yet God came in the flesh, fulfilled our righteousness, and offered Himself up for such criminals. For any and all who would, who would turn from their foolishness and believe. He suffered and died on that cross and He bore the just, holy wrath of God for sinners. That is amazing. That's amazing. There's no story more amazing than that. And it doesn't end there. He rose again on the third day, victorious over sin and death. And, and, and the first fruit, the first one, the first man to have a new body and be part of the new creation as a guarantee for all who would believe in Him that we would have eternal life like His life. That's amazing. And then He ascended and He reigns now. He reigns now. He's working. He's not absent. He's reigning. And the Spirit of God is the active agent of the Trinity doing the work. And He will return. That's an amazing story. There's no better story. It was Paul's glory. That was Paul's glory. That's why? That's how he got back up and did what he did. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. 
Who is sufficient for these things? Paul gloried in Christ. And he knew that as he told the story that he had to tell, that God would use that story. God would use His people and who they are and the testimony that they bring to be an aroma. And a glorious aroma for some. Some would hear it. Many would hear it and, and, and experience it and smell that aroma. And it would be the sweetest smell they had ever known. It would only grow sweeter and sweeter. And for others, it would be a stench. What a tragic thing. What a tragic thing. But for some, the sweetest thing that they could ever experience would actually be a stench of death to them. Paul recognized that as he proclaimed Christ, he was God's sword coming down on mankind. Some would receive and embrace. Others would reject. Who? Who is sufficient for these things? Amazing that God would use us that way. We don't know who will be on what side until the final day, but it's amazing as we witness to this truth, as we glory in Christ, as we tell the story that must be told, the greatest story there is that God would make it a fragrance of blessing and life to some and death to others. If you're here with us now and you're yet to be a believer, I don't say that to somehow cordon you off. The invitation's always extended to any and all, whosoever would come. All you need to do is turn from foolishness, place your faith in Him. And experience this fragrance that's life to life. Paul gloried in Christ and therefore was propelled to continue to share. Finally, the Father. Paul continued on this mission despite mixed results because he knew that the Father was over it all. He knew that the sovereign grace of God was at work both through results that that led to people believing and results that led to people rejecting. He knew God was over all these things. He had a strong sense, an appropriate biblical sense of the call and providence of God. He had seen it in his own life, hadn't he? He was a man bent on destroying the church, not interested in the things of the Father, thinking he was, but really interested in his own righteousness. He was not interested in the the gospel of Christ except to extinguish it. He wasn't pursuing the ministry of the Spirit except to murder those who did. He was hell-bent. And God stopped him in his tracks, confronted him, converted him, transformed him, and commissioned him. He knew God had done it, and not himself. He knew that God was at work, that the Father was over these things, and the Father had determined that now would be the day of salvation, that this gospel to go forward and people are to come to Christ to repent. And yes, some will be judged for rejecting. But, but God was at work. God was at work saving people such as Paul. That the Father was sovereign over this, fulfilling all that was written. And, and I just, I've said this before, I would have loved just to have been in the mind of Paul over those few days where he was blinded and fasting and praying, thinking what's going on. Here's a genius who probably had memorized the whole Old, Old Testament. His whole paradigm, his whole picture turned upside down and just what was going on? Probably smoke coming out of his head as he's rethinking all of Scripture in light of this. And he, I, at that point, and probably, perhaps at that point, perhaps later, came to the conclusion that God Himself was at work through Christ to fulfill all things. He knew that God was over it all. God was the, the, the 
one who was working. He was the sovereign one acting. It was not his deal. It was not the church's deal. It was the Father's deal ultimately. And so in, in, the, in Acts, written by Luke, a disciple of Paul, chapter 13, verse 48, as it speaks about all that's going on, it says this amazing verse, just this, this truth, this deep theological truth that gets just dropped on our laps in one short pat phrase. It says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Whoa. Just this little phrase dropped there. To teach us that ultimately behind everything is a sovereign God who has already decided before time began, has already decided, who has looked out and in His wisdom, in His, in his mysterious will, we don't understand all the reasons why, but has determined that I'm going to work. I'm going to work in the year 60. I'm going to work in the year 30. I'm going to work in the year 2010. And I'm going to rescue this person at that point. I'm setting my affection on them now. And I'm going to make sure it gets done when it's time to get it done. I'm going to work through circumstances. I'm going to work through the power of the Spirit in this person's life. I'm going to use people like Paul. And I'm going to get it done. I'm going to save that one. I'm going to rescue him. God is on a mission. He is the one who's good. It's not our idea. Left to ourselves, we'd have nothing to do with any of this. You know, it isn't, it isn't that God's in this castle and we're all knocking on the door. God, come out and save some of us, please. That's not what's going on. Scripture teaches clearly that humanity is depraved in and of itself. We're not knocking on the door. We're running the other way. Full steam ahead. We want nothing to do with that. Now, it may look good. It may look religious. But it isn't that. It isn't God. We're running the other way. That's, that's what the Scriptures teach. There's not one who is good. Not one who is righteous. We are running the other way. That's what Scripture says. We have to understand that about human nature. We live in a society that, that has a very high view of man. Historically, this is an aberration. Throughout time, people have been convinced through history that mankind is not good. How can we think mankind is good just looking at the 20th century? In and of ourselves, we are wicked and depraved. Scriptures are clear on that. Left to ourselves, we are running away from the Lord. And yet God, in His mercy, doesn't stand behind the castle walls. Sends His Son. Sends His Son for us. His Son completes the work. And then the Spirit comes and touches lives and opens up blind eyes that wanted nothing to do with Him. It's because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus. Not because of you. And Paul, this was Paul's confidence. This was what Paul stood on. The fact that God had decided He was going to save people. Charles Spurgeon, in speaking of this idea of what's called election, this truth of this, which is, which is hard for us to understand, but it is so important and it is so central. And speaking of this, he says, Ah, sir, the Lord must have loved me before I was born, or else He would not have seen anything in me to love afterwards. I am sure it is true in my case. I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen Him. I am sure He chose me before I was born, or else He never would have chosen me afterwards. And He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why He should have looked upon me with special love. So I am forced to accept that great Bible doctrine. This truth in Scripture 
is, is so important for us. Now, I, am, I, I know, and I know you know, there are things about it we don't understand. There are mysteries, indeed. That it's hard to reconcile this with choice and culpability, which is very clear in Scripture. And we don't know who is, who isn't appointed ahead of time. It's, it's not for us to know. It's a mystery in the counsels of God and His wisdom and His perfection. He's perfect. His decisions are glorious and right, and we trust Him with that. We don't know who and who isn't until the final day. And indeed, we know that the gospel is offered to all of humanity. But we must not shy away from this glorious comfort to weak and wavering sinners such as us. That's why Paul got back up. He knew God had appointed people. Later on, when he's in Corinth, it's another hard time, more persecution. And God says to him, God speaks to him. He he says to him, where is it? Uh, Do not... Be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. He encourages Paul by saying, I'm with you and there's many here in the city who I have for myself. He doesn't mean presently. He means I have them. I'll set my affection on them. I'm going to save them through your ministry. So be encouraged. This truth is our confidence in evangelism. It's our confidence in mission. It's our comfort for the believer. It is not for the confusion and condemnation of the unbeliever, by the way. That's not how it functions in Scripture. Maybe in a rare case. It's for the comfort and confidence of God's people. It is to propel us. It's our hope in evangelism. That God has decided He is going to rescue sinners. He's going to rescue them around us. That's our confidence. That propels us outward in evangelism. And He has many. He has many in Corinth. He has many, I believe, here. Here in Greater Haverhill. He has many. Revelation 7, 9. There's a view of the final number, the the worshipers before the Lord, those who are in white, those who have been martyred. And, And John says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude. A great multitude. A great multitude that no one could number. Now, when they want to number things as big in Scripture, let's say thousands, and then thousands times ten, ten thousands, and that means like gazillion. That's, they didn't have millions, so that, that's gazillion. This is bigger than gazillion. A great number that no one could, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Remember the promise to Abraham? God said, Your descendants will be like the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore. Who are the descendants of Abraham? Those who live by faith, Galatians teaches us, his people. How numerous are they? Like the stars of heaven, the sand is on the seashore. The doctrine of election sometimes is used functionally to limit the number, to say that it's small. Scripture doesn't say that, and it's not to be used that way. This truth of God appointing ahead of time that he's going to save people should propel us. And and, and maybe you're going to bank on small, but I'm not... I'm banking on big numbers. I'm banking on what Revelation says. I'm banking on what Genesis says. I'm banking that God's at work. I'm banking that He's at work in this church by no accident. He has sustained us. Those who have been with us for a while, you know the grace of God that sustained us. You know what He's done. We're not here by accident. He's not allowing us 
to buy the building by accident. He's not pouring out grace by accident. We're not seeing things by accident. He's doing it because he has a mission and a plan. He has many around here. And we need to orient ourselves that way. We need to believe him and know and get back up like Paul did because he has many around us. Because he's at work. The band comes up as we close. How many people here know William Carey? Know the name William Carey? Know about William Carey? First modern missionary to India. He loved this doctrine. And as he looked at this truth, and as he looked at Scripture, he was propelled into mission. He was propelled to get back up. Read his biography. He was knocked down and got back up many times. But when he first went, when he first wanted to go on mission, he went before a board and he basically said, guys, the Great Commission, is it not for today as well? Is it not for today as well? And someone there, Mr. Bad Theologian, I call him, he said, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. That's Mr. Bad Theologian. He's totally misunderstanding the doctrine of God appointing, of his grace. This is what William Carey said at other times. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. There's a couple others if you want to advance those, Brendan. Other things. Uh, to know the will of God, we need an open Bible and an open map. He looked at the world and thought, God is big. God's at work. It is not the commission of our, yeah, and then he said, is it not the commission of our Lord still building upon us? Can we not do more than now we are doing? Is there one more quote, Brendan? Is that it? Just that? Okay. Uh, so his response was, no, Mr. Bad Theologian, you're Mr. Bad Theologian. God is at work. We believe God. The commission is here. I'm going out. And this man went out. And if you read the story, we don't hear much about him because he went to India. We don't hear much about India. There are millions of people today affected by this man, what he did. He, uh, he, he, he was used to really transform the Indian culture. And just read the story. There was uh, murder of widows, murder of children going on. There was all sorts of horrid things I don't even want to mention from the public going on in the Hindu society. He came in and preached Christ, loved people, and, and did good for them. And he, he affected them in terms of science, technology, and most of all, the gospel. It was a model. He preached Christ. He built people up. He, he helped churches. And he, he really changed India. What we see going on now in India, which is really fabulous, is through this man. By grace, will you be like William Carey? Will you be like Paul? Will you ground yourself in the sovereign grace of the Father? Will you glory in Christ? Will you desperately depend on the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit? If so, and this is God's heart, we will maintain our zeal, never be lacking in zeal, maintaining our spiritual fervor. May God do that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these truths. Lord, would you come and bring him home to us in our minds and our hearts? Would you lead us forward? Would we depend on you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in such a way that we get back up? Not because we're powerful, not because we're strong, but because you are working in our lives. And I pray for those right now who, who feel like they've been stoned, been put to death, who are struggling. Would you Touch them right now. 
you minister to them, Holy Spirit? Would you revive them? Would you cause them to glory in Christ and delight in the Father's goodwill? And would you use them in the roles you've called them to for our joy in you and your great glory, we pray.